today I'm joined by Vladimir, Dr. Vladimir Berliak. So uh, let me know if that, if I say your name wrong. By the way, that um, sounds fine. <laughs> great. And um, so Vladimir is assistant professor in the Department of English at Durham uh, and Durham University in the UK. And Vladimir, so you, you work in English literary and, and intellectual history, um, and with a focus on the period 1500 to 1700. And uh, I suppose just to begin with, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to know how you sort of characterise your scholarly interests now. And of course, we're going to be talking about a particular article you wrote on Tolkien, but that's from that was from 2010, so that's from quite a while ago. But so, so what do you mainly work on now? Yeah, that was the depressing <laughs> long time ago. Um, <laughs> I work mostly on 16th, 17th century um, English literature and associated fields in in the intellectual culture of that period. Um, my my full title is actually, I mean, the the full um, job job description is assistant professor in early modern literature so early modern or renaissance i don't particularly actually like either of those terms so i'm very i'm I'm very happy with just assistant professor so things like um well that's the period where you you have authors that everybody knows about shakespeare milton uh, many other authors that are not as canonical um i i work on milton for example i work on subjects such as allegory um associated subjects history of interpretation history of reading um yeah that, that, would, that would approximately be it but this article this article was a like a side project i guess that i just i felt i had something interesting to say about tolkien and yes, and, then yeah. I, and then i said it <laughs> and then yeah, 10 sure. years went by <laughs> yeah no worries yeah and as we'll, we'll come to, um, you know, I do think it is a very interesting article. Um, just out of interest, what, you know, I did notice on your bio page at uh-huh. Durham that you published a lot on Milton. And just, just very briefly, what, what interests you in Milton uh, particularly? I mean, obviously, that there is a lot to be interested in. Yeah, know, well, well Milton is, um, well, Milton is, is very interesting in, um, in terms of his place in the history of the allegorical tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a chapter in, in, in a book that I should have also written a long time ago, but I still haven't managed to finish on, uh, <laughs> on, on allegory in this period. There, there will be a chapter on Milton, what Milton does with allegory, for example, in Paradise Lost. Um, in, in fact, the trajectory of Milton's career is, um, you know, he moves from relatively conventional ideas about writing an allegorical epic in one scheme or another, maybe, in a, you know, maybe similar to Spencer's in the Arthurian framework. Spencer's Fairy Queen, right? Um, And then he goes through several other, you know, considers several other options, then eventually ends up writing Paradise Lost. And yeah, so he, uh, so that's one interest, I mean, where he's, where, what his place is and what Paradise Lost contributes to this tradition. And, and another is, um, for example, now, um, I'm right in the middle of it. Of in, fact, in fact, this third year module that I do at, at Durham, which is called Paradise Lost is Science Fiction, mm-hmm. where we explore, um, you know, the premises, science fiction, both in the in the broader and the, and the narrower sense, you know, the idea that Paradise Lost, and it's that I'm not, of course, the first person to say that, that, you know, Paradise Lost shows you other worlds, travelers, 
between these worlds, supernatural beings coming through, you know, um, it could be, it's may, you know, in, in a, it's a bit of a stretch, but it, it, you could look at it as an example of early science fiction. It certainly resonates with certain actual examples of early science fiction from the 17th century. But then in the broader sense of the term, it's also an experiment in, in it's a, a fictionalized extrapolation of what Milton would have understood as, as his scientific understanding of the world. That's, of course, an anachronism to, to speak of science in the sense of the 17th century, but what he would have understood is something equivalent to what we would understand as that. So he tries to um, construct a fictional universe um, which is not entirely, uh, in his view, made up. So he's extrapolating from various domains of, uh, of knowledge. So theology and biblical studies, philosophy, um, um, aspects of, of, you know, developments in, in, in early science, you know, astronomy and other sciences, and tries to create a coherent universe out of that. So I think it's an extremely interesting example of, of that. Yeah, so those would be some of the interests in Milton, specifically. I need to go back and read Paradise Lost. I did do a, a unit on uh... On Milton at university, but um, I think we only read Areopagitica. Um, I don't think we got to Paradise Lost. So. Right. Yeah. Well. <laughs> uh, well. The thing. Yes. The, well. The, the past. The, the the sort of aspect. The parts of Paradise Lost that are most interesting in this respect are, are what what much of the critical tradition on Paradise Lost sees as basically sort of scaffolding. So, <clears throat> so the you know the the, the what Paradise Lost is supposed to be about is justifying the ways of God to man. It's and all this business, you know, flying through chaos, landing on the outer shell of the earth, um, of the, of the, sorry, of the cosmos, of the created world, and then, you know, that cosmos has this opening at the top, and then, uh, and on top of it, some sort of a structure is adjoined. So now we're creating this elaborate universe with multiple cosmological domains, and it all, it's all sort of hanging together. It's all being, um, you know. Um, synchronized with aspects of, of um, with details from the Bible, details from classical myth, read in a particular yeah. way. So that's all there <laughs> in the yeah, poem, yeah. and it seems you know, it's it's so elaborate and so uh, detailed and so coherent. It's, it's there throughout the, the work. It's not accidentally there, right? And if it was yeah. only about. Um, theology and morality and all, which it is about, of course, as well. Yeah. But it was only about that. Then those parts seem unnecessary, and, and yeah. I, I don't think I don't think they are. <laughs> I feel like I should do a podcast on Milton. Um, <laughs> that sounds yeah. really fascinating. Okay, so so that that's great. Yeah. So, so obviously you've you've been doing a lot of work on on that. But obviously we're we're talking about your Tolkien article, uh, which you mentioned uh, was from. 2010 so again quite quite a while ago now but um, nonetheless I think uh, I think it remains a very interesting article you know still I, I haven't seen too much in the way of uh, responses to it that have really engaged too much but we can we can come to that so again the article is from the journal Tolkien studies and, and uh, those who've listened to my last couple of episodes um, will remember that I interviewed Dennis Wise, who who also had an article in in that uh, in that journal, this one is so. This article is called the, the Book of Lost Tales: Tolkien as Metafictionist. So we're going to talk about some of the some of the themes and um, just insights that um, that I suppose I you know I, I find in the article. So obviously, in a, in a general sense, you're talking about Tolkien as a 
metafictional author. So I guess just from a from a bird's eye view, from a very broad, broad perspective, um, in that article, what does metafiction mean to you? And you know, is it characteristic or not? I guess of modern fiction of the modern uh, modern world. And then we'll come to Tolkien uh, particular in, in particular after that. But what would right, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, metafiction is a fairly standard term now. Certainly in literary studies, literary criticism, maybe to you know, uh, maybe you know people who don't really sort of are not particularly familiar with that field and might sound a little um, you know out of the way but but all that metafiction really means is um, fiction about fiction so fiction that in- includes references to to other fiction or or, or uh, refers to itself uh, in the process of, of, of narrating the, the you know the story or the novel or whatever it is um, it's similar to you know such terms as meta theater meta theatrical or meta drama so theater about theater drama about drama and it's not and I don't think uh, there's anything uh, I don't think there's anything intrinsically modern or pre-modern or postmodern about it I mean you you have these uh, metafictional elements in earlier liter- periods of, of literary history um, I think you could you could look at you could say that you could look at it in two basic ways. One way of looking at, uh, at metafiction is to simply um, think about it as a device, or maybe as a mode of um, narrative fiction, or whatever it is. Uh, so it's a re- repository, a palette of devices that an author can use. So, for example, when Shakespeare has um, actors visit the court at Elsinore, right? So actors visiting other actors basically on the stage um and and then gives instructions to them and then you know um gets one of the actors to do a particular speech and then this you know so so you have a tragic protagonist watching an actor perform a tragic so something then is uh, these devices can be used for various types of effects now the interesting part is what you know how far an author goes and what is the effect that they're really after so so you can you can go from something really quite subtle. So you're thinking I'm thinking of something like, say, I don't know, Edgar Allan Poe's manuscript found in a bottle. If you know that story, uh, where 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 there's simply a conceit that that what we're reading was a manuscript found in a bottle, right? It's there's some it, there's a minimal sort of buffer or a minimal um, distance between just going ahead with the story or sort of. Um, encapsulating it within a with a metafictional situation, but that's all that really happens in that story. And then at, at the far end, you have these really elaborate experiments in metafiction. You know, authors such as Borges, other other authors yes. that are uh, usually considered sort of late modernist or postmodernist, where metafictional devices are used much more in a much more radical way. There's there's typically an attempt to sort of break the mimetic illusion you know the, the representative representational illusion of, of the story you know a character will suddenly become aware of the fact that they're a character in a story will start addressing the reader or the narrator will do that so it's a it's a it's a sort of palette spectrum of possibilities uh but 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 i don't think they're they're, they're necessarily i mean and then it's, at given points in literary history yeah maybe they uh so certainly with in, in you know late 60s 70s you can see this sort of um, vogue for for postmodernist metafiction, but it, it's very flexible and exists in earlier periods of literary history. And there's nothing particularly um, sure. sort of another way of well, what I was going to say is that there's nothing there's 
it's a stand fairly standard literary device. It's not the most standard, perhaps, but you know. It, and then the another interesting way of looking at it is to then say that 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 it's somehow a property of all fiction, regardless of whether the author is consciously using those devices or not. That somehow, at some level, um, or you know, look from a particular angle by the by the right kind of reader, <laughs> uh, all fiction. Latently contains the possibility of sort of becoming self-aware, self-conscious, you know, manifesting yes. this self self-consciousness about its its status as 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 literature. So yeah, so one is the idea that it's a device, and the other is that it's some sort of inherent property in in all literary works, which comes to surface yes. if submitted submitted to the right kind of scrutiny. Sure. Okay, that's great. And of course, in your in your article that we're uh, discussing today, you make a case that uh, Tolkien employs a particular kind of uh, metafictional strategy, I guess, um, that is in some sense unique in, in its sort of <clears throat> in the organisation of the features that sort of he brings to bear and therefore the effects that it might have on the reader. And, um, you know, I know a few other scholars have sort of said similar things, but I think um, this particular uh, enunciation of the idea is, is quite quite interesting so i guess just in a again in a broad sense and then we can get into into details um how do you view sort of tolkien's metafictional uh project <laughs> right well 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 what's interesting first the first thing is to establish a sort of chronology and and uh, uh sure. to establish what what tolkien wrote at what point how his views changed and so on i, I thought that was uh, that was interesting to do and what you do uh what you find is that from a fairly early uh period, Tolkien is basically using some metafictional devices, so he will present a, a, an early poem as a translation that, you know, a character within the poem uh, translated from a diff- from another manuscript or heard from, um, you know, uh, oral storytellers, and then maybe that story or that poem has been filtered through several languages, and you know, that, so, so, so constructing these metafictional frameworks for his early works, you know, of course you know, and you know probably better than I do, that the the various versions of what would eventually, uh, you know, be, be the Silmarillion had had gone through multiple iterations over the years, and most of those involved some metafictional um, device like that, some account of how these stories are, have found their way to a manuscript, which is now being reproduced, you know, will be reproduced in print. And then, of course, on the other hand, uh, devising these increasingly elaborate fictional worlds themselves, right, which. Um, and there's, of course, some tension between these two um, endeavors. On the one hand, you're creating um, a fictional world you want, and the sort of the assumption is that you want the reader to be immersed in in, in this world. And um, and we know how immersed Tolkien readers get into Tolkien's world, I mean, <laughs> you know. And on the other hand, he's devising these increasingly uh, elaborate ways of distancing you from that world. So you think you've seen something, you think you, you know, you you read about these characters doing that. But in fact, what you read, turns out, was uh, like a distant, semi-legendary account that someone wrote down in a very remote past that went through several sort of recensions, alterations, fictionalizations. Um, so it's not really authentic. And he's constantly, I think, he's constantly sort of. But, but sorry, and now I'm now I'm I've skipped an important part that's where right. uh, where uh, that's that's what eventually he ends up doing. But but what I was going to stress is that it's a slow evolution 
to get to that. And and even even once he so the Hobbit, for example, is originally published has none of that. The Lord of the Rings is originally published in the first edition has a, has a prologue where um, which which does have like a a, a a base. I mean, you could call that a metafictional framework. It has a basic framework of how the manuscript came to the hands of this fictional pseudo editor. But it, but the distance is much lesser. The idea is, um, you know, the Shire is essentially sort of England or Proto England. The Hobbits are sort of the, the Proto English. Um, he, he says in the prologue something like, "They still inhabit the parts of the world that they used to." And then, and then the really interesting part comes, where he so so, you know, the work has already been published, and he has this realization that that was the wrong thing to do. And then I think in, in one of Christopher Tolkien's volumes, you know, the history of middle earth, he reproduces uh, a note that Tolkien uh, apparently made at some point about this original prologue saying that was a mistake. We need to, I need to cancel something. He says something like uh, that to mistake real life with the machinery of the tale was a mistake. We need, I have to cancel that as, or something. And he does. Right. So in the second edition, he brings out a completely new prologue with a note on the Shire records and uh, um, other alterations. And that really fits uh, not only the Lord of the Rings, it retrospectively sort of finds a place for The Hobbit, and prospectively it, it's anticipating that the Silmarillion will also be immersed in this complicated metafictional framework. Uh, so what he did, essentially, in my view, was write a, an, an extraordinarily complex fictional world um, into, into, say, existence, and then he sort of strategically unwrote it <laughs> and and yeah. and the real question is what was what was gained by that and why he felt at this final stage of his career uh that he had to do that yeah you know uh, again in your article that this this sort of metafictional conceit as it's often called is mediated by by this device that's called the red book of Westmarch, and I think if people if people think about Tolkien's metafiction at all, they usually sort of have some sense. Oh, yeah, it's this found manuscript. So it's sort of in that found manuscript tradition, as you note. Um, although, well, and, and that's that's sort of so that that's communicated by several sort of um, to use the jargon sort of paratexts. So you've got the, the prologue, the uh, the note on the Shire records, and then you've got the appendices, and in particular, Appendix F or appendices E and F. And taken together, um, you know, you make a good case that uh, that it actually becomes much more complex um, than simply, as you, uh, you know, the, the found manuscript tradition, not least because, um, you know, as several uh, scholars have noted, the book as written uh, isn't actually a diary or anything like that. It's a, it's a literary construction clearly so right so the notion that this is literally being produced you know by the hobbit has or by by the hobbits i should say um has you know doesn't seem to work and and you note that indeed several scholars have sort of dismissed the conceit for that reason they sort of say well okay this is just a kind of this is just a kind of um afterthought that tolkien's you know it's a kind of um thin veneer over the the actual the book but 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 you you know you obviously you develop a sort of a an argument that no, we have to actually take it, take that more seriously, um, in light of, of the the actual much more much more complex kind of construction that Tolkien sort of builds, and, and part of that is that, as you know, uh, 
it's not simply that there is um, sort of one layer. As you say, there are sort of texts upon texts. There's in the note on the Shire Records, there's a clear sense that we're looking at some sort of literary tradition that's built up, that that's how we arrive at this um, this final product <laughs> that we're yeah. reading. Yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, you know, literary criticism is fairly... <laughs> um, <laughs> Is, is, is a fairly um, you know democratic and free in, in endeavor I guess but one one rule applies mm-hmm. I mean even that rule doesn't necessarily apply but but one rule is you you have to deal with what is in the text I mean and you know an interpretation ideally will cover as many parts of the text and then you know there will be some contradictory parts that decisions will need to be made by the reader you know all i'm proposing is that's what it says that's what that's what it says in the text so if you just follow the impl- implications of that you have to arrive at some some type of scheme i may I, my scheme might not be correct in every detail in fact i'm pretty sure it isn't i i in i I actually sort of there. There are many people who know. I, I, I'm sure Tolkien's work, you know, much better than I do on a much more uh, sort of intimate, detailed level. I, I, I used, I used to know it, but I haven't really gone back to it in, in a long while. So I, it, it might not be correct in all detail, on all details. But, but as you say, uh, as, as soon as you compare what is said for example in the Northern Shire records crucially and, and in some other uh, sort of appendix F and elsewhere and you compare that to the nature of the text that you're reading which is a fully um, a, a literary narrative with the full range of, of devices that we associate with literary narrative it, it, you know it has dialogue and it has descriptions uh, you know it has it's it's a literary narrative. Nobody writes such a literary, literary narrative about themselves. There are no examples of, of uh, or you know, not, I, I, probably we can find some examples, but we won't find many examples of people doing that. Uh, and even if we did, why would we assume? Why would we extrapolate from that uh, very anomalous instance to to yeah. for that to have been the rule? With so you have to posit yeah. this process, especially if on top of that you also know that, of course, Tolkien as a medievalist would have been intimately familiar with uh, with real life examples of that where a tradition um, you know survives only in some very distant form you know had gone through several recensions and um, you know, abbreviation and expansions and additions and um, so he was you know that there are many real life examples of texts undergoing this process I do think that and I, I think I hope I say in the article. I, I I think I say it that there's there's a few loose ends. There's a few contradictions. I I would accept that. Um, but I think also that if you look at the whole thing, the big picture, especially what, what I was just talking about. If you look at the whole career, the arc, and where it's going towards the end of his uh, life and towards the end of his career, that to me it seems fairly clear that that is where it's going. It's going towards. The realization that, for whatever reason, we can discuss what the reason might be, uh, the devising of a, of a metafictional structure to fit all that in is somehow key, right? And yeah, and then we can discuss why why that might be. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's um, that's convincing. And and you know, on reading some of these post Lord of the Rings material, that becomes sort of ever more evident as you know he seems to be working in a kind of 
this persona of what you call the sort of fictional translator editor um, in your in your paper, and then sort of you know as though he's discovering these these things. Um, you know, he's a he's a he's a scholar of the world um, that he's describing. And, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. He's you know as opposed to I mean obviously as you mentioned he he does work with various metafictional ideas uh, from the start so it's not as though this sort of comes about all of a sudden after the Lord of the Rings or during the composition of the Lord of the Rings but um, certainly the particular um, the particular organisation of, of the of the material um, you, you know as, as you mentioned perhaps only arises as it is now during that second edition and you know you note in your article that. A lot of Tolkien scholars and, and indeed readers um, who I've come across don't quite know how to take all of this because, of course, when you read The Lord of the Rings, there's a sense that, um, and this is often talked about in terms of this idea of the depth of the narrative, there's a sense that, you know, there's a high degree of verisimilitude. Um, I've never felt that myself, actually. I mean, it's very it's very, um, it's very uh, sort of all-encompassing, but um, it's not the case if you read it carefully i think in any case that you know every detail of the world is sketched in tremendous um you know in tremendous depth there are there are very many kind of holes and sort of features of the world that you have to infer Mm -hmm. but um you know i I think a lot of people will will want to uh, and they'll, they'll they'll resist the idea to some extent because they'll want you know they will want to um, believe in some sense that the world uh, that Tolkien creates is real on its own terms, and that you know Sam does actually um, recite a poem about the trolls. It's not not you know why would we want to think about um, think about that that scenario as a kind of later literary interpolation? You know, right, right. for example. Yeah. What, what, what do, so I suppose you know, the, the question I'm sort of getting towards is. How does um, and this this for me is like something I'm still thinking about and, and wondering about and not quite sure how to answer myself. But how does taking this metafictional conceit? So as you mentioned, you know, if we take it seriously, then then we have to believe that in some sense um, the text that we're reading is inauthentic to the history of this world in, in some in some sense, right? Uh, we're not not exactly sure how, but. You know, as as we've mentioned, it's um, perhaps based on diaries or first person accounts of some kind, but it's not itself that that account. And as the note on the Shire Records says, you know, there are several there are several traditions of, of manu- manuscript. Or there are several manuscript traditions that um, of the Red Book. There's not just one Red Book. There are literally literally several of them, and some of them are in Gondor and the. Um, can't remember which one it is meant to be that is actually sort of behind the Lord of the Rings, maybe the one that Sam's family has. But um, clearly we're not reading the original, um, you know, an original uh, sort of account. So I don't know, how, how, how does that change the meaning of the work, do you think, um, in light of, of this conceit? Because, um, yeah. yeah. Right. That, that, does it does it ruin it? <laughs> does it ruin it for everyone? Uh, well, yeah. Um, yeah. I um, so first of all, I you know, there's no talking police. You can't go around, <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, telling people you have to read it, and you know, you have to read the note on the Shire Records very carefully. <laughs> you know, devise a manuscript <laughs> schema. So um, you can just like with any other literary work, basically, you can read it to. But several, you know, various degrees of, of involvement. But, but at this level, where we're 
be giving it serious attention as, as a literary work. Um, what what is um, well, what is gained by it, I suppose, or what is you could debate whether that was a gain or a loss. Many many perhaps some people would say that it was a loss that he took the wrong turn towards the end of uh, of you know his writing career, and that maybe he shouldn't have gone down that road, and that that has somehow. Uh, made the, the work less interesting. To me, it it, has, it, it makes it um, a greater literary achievement. And it also has something, I mean, I think it's fascinating, in fact, that, that he felt, apparently he felt that that's where he had to go at the end. And I think it's, it, you know, there's something fundamental for us to learn from that, uh, because Tolkien's work is one of the great experiments in creating a fictional world in, in literature of all times. I certainly don't know of a, of a, of a greater uh, project of that kind. You know, everybody who's listening to this knows, you know, what is involved in the invention of languages, the invention of... So it's not just writing the books, it's inventing the whole backstory for them. It's inventing the languages, the maps, the race, everything. Um, so an experiment of that complexity, and then at the end, what you do is say, well, all of this, all of this richness and detail that I've been creating for decades, I will now just sort of wave this metafictional wand over it and it will all disappear in a way, and or will be sort of recede into very far from your reach, um, you know, behind this layered, um, you know, sequence of sort of these intermediary stages of transmission and so on. So why would you do that? It sort of goes back to that thing about, uh, but you know, two two types of two possible uses of metafiction. One is to 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 in fact enhance the reality of the the narrative. So with even with a basic, very basic example like Poe's story, uh, you know, if it's a manuscript found in the bottle, then somehow because we know, I mean, we just live in a world where we have manuscripts and books and and you know writing so we just it, it makes it seem a little bit more real rather than um than just going straight into the narrative right um and on the other hand is the other type of metafiction which is the exact does the exact opposite which is which which is designed to take you out uh out of the narrative to break the you know the fourth wall to break the illusion of 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 narration um and i think Tolkien is it is an example of that first species of metafiction uh, somebody doing something very sophisticated and complex and interesting with it but ultimately for the same reason namely to increase the authenticity of the world and that may seem like a paradox because isn't the world enough in itself right isn't this you know the the, the some of you know whatever anyone thinks of them. I mean, it's simply an empirical fact that these are some of the most loved and, and widely read stories of our time, right? The Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings. Um, so isn't that enough? I mean, it, it may well be for some readers, and um, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And, and this is not just be sort of saying that, or I, I really don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't argue with anyone <laughs> about this. I don't know why people would. But, but what metafictional apparatus does is simply sort of sealed in a way seal this so isn't it enough isn't it enough uh, the, the stories themselves well Tolkien came to believe I, I think he came to believe that it isn't that they need a kind of final breath to, to really instill into them uh, a, a certain type of 
authenticity, if you will, that, that they wouldn't otherwise have. Otherwise, they would always be ultimately products of, of one single human imagination. Right, you would always, you would always be able to sort of point to influences, point to you know, don't tell me you know you didn't take the you know the dwarves' names out of the Edda. Of course you did. They're they're exactly the same names. <laughs> so, uh, um, so what this does is in fact hiding the world behind these these intermediary layers. In fact, makes it uh, in a way more authentic. But there's also a feeling of loss and distance and mediation. Yes. But that in itself yes. is part of this effect. And it's really very similar to many actual real literary works where we have, um, you know, and you've, it, well, I've just mentioned the Edda by, by, by chance. So I, I'm, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm, I shouldn't, in fact, be talking about it because I'm not a scholar of that material. I don't know it at all. But, but with, with, with that or with any similar sort of um, late recorded mythology, right? Or, or, or something like Homer, right? You know that that it's it, it has been proven, right? That it's it's a late version of, of 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 whatever you know the original event or whatever the original tradition was, right? So 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 because it's impossible, in fact, to any fictional world is is ultimately mediated. It's it's always a literary world. You can't really trap reality in in anything, right? Let alone you know, lines on a, on a piece of paper. Um, so, yeah. what the metafiction does is is compensate for that. You take a hit, as it were. You take the loss and the and the you know and this nostalgic um, mood that this creates. But in the process, you gain authenticity of, of a different kind. That you know, that's at, at, at this moment right now. I think that's as as coherent as I can make it. Yeah, no, that's good. That's cool. Yeah, and and I know Michael Drought, for example, has made the the uh, the argument that you know nostalgia or a sense of nostalgia is perhaps the central emotion that the Lord of the Rings produces in, in readers. Um, I don't know if, if you would agree with that, but I think. Oh no, yeah, no, sorry, just to interrupt you there for a second. I mean, that's I, I think that's absolutely true, but also that's something mm. that Tolkien explicitly says, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he says. Uh, uh, I would now have to find it, but he says um, in one of the letters, my chief literary concern is to create this sense, heart-wracking sense of a vanished past, right? Yes. That's yeah. my chief literary concern. <laughs> so in order to yeah. really do that, you have to create this enormous world, you know, the, this enormously complex detailed um, uh, world perhaps with no parallel in, in elsewhere in literary history and then at the very end you have to sort of let it go <laughs> and it's this yeah. letting go of that world that will then uh, paradoxically make it even more uh, um, you know authentic or whatever is the word depth will lend it even greater depth than it would otherwise have and I think that's the big big difference between for example Tolkien and some some, you know, not that I read much of it, or, or um, but but when you know when you're comparing Tolkien to to many sort of works, or uh, whether it, whatever medium which have imitated the basic sort of flavor of that yes. world, I mean that's one of the big differences, right? That that yeah, this yeah. this this extra layer on top of that. And uh, just to 
just for, for, for reader's note, I think it's letter 110, which you do cite in the paper. So um, for uh-huh. those interested. Yeah, and I think I think that's, for me, why this conceit or the metafictional um, structure, superstructure, um, if you like, of The Lord of the Rings is actually really central to the book, even if you don't really pay much attention to it, because... Um, because uh, it is central to the um, uh, to the production of, of, of what I think, or the, or the elicitation, if you like, of, of what I think is the, the most important or the or the central sort of thematic point of the, the text, which is that sense of lost nostalgia, um, those kinds of emotions, and uh, obviously, as as I said, sort of it's thematically related to, to the whole point of the ring, the whole the whole story, which is. Um, or at least the three, the three sort of elvish rings, which are ultimately designed to sort of delay entropy, I suppose. Right. Uh, you know, and perhaps there's a point being made there about the impossibility of, of doing that as, as well. Yeah. So, so, and at least for me, I, I feel with regards to the the argument that you've made and that Michael Drowd and others have made, you know, I feel that the more and more I've come to feel that the metafictional sort of part of that is is quite central, um, and you do, I think, lose something by not considering that but as you say i mean there are there are levels of of, yeah. of readliness i guess that, yeah <laughs> that no I, yeah exactly that's i would yeah i don't i mean i would prefer to sort of view it as you you gain something if you if you're aware of that you don't necessarily lose you just gain a little bit more yeah, yeah, yeah. um you know i yeah. mean when I, I i don't know when i i don't know if it's changed actually i i don't i mean i wish i had the time to to keep track of you know like <laughs> i i do take a peek every now and then when i can't but um, when I wrote that, I still had this feeling, and I know that it was there, and it's there in the earlier Tolkien criticism that one of the sort of motivations for a lot of people who who wrote like academic literary criticism about it was to uh, to sort of justify right the 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 interest and justify uh, you know to just give a, to defend Tolkien um, as a ser- piece of sort of serious um, fiction, serious literature. Um, I don't know if that's still an imperative or not, but but you know I, one of the things that I maybe had in mind was that if you really read it carefully, and if you for example take a note of this metafictional element, you know maybe that gives you know contributes contributes to that cause a little bit. But I don't know if that's a, a you know t- today I somehow feel that it's not an issue anymore or maybe i don't know that actually that would be my question to you one of the questions that i'd be interested in is is that still sure. do you still feel that do, is is this still a um what, what anyone's thinking about um yeah i i think that's certainly less of a thing now certainly that i i interviewed dennis wise who's a who's another um a professor or assistant professor i'm not exactly sure uh, in america and he um recently and you know he, he he certainly said to me that uh, that's less of a that's less of a um an imperative for Tolkien studies yeah. is, is that sort of defensive posture at the same time i don't think he's sort of um going to be you know necessarily on the syllabus of a, an english um literature uh course or a um what do you call it a survey course um, right. necessarily anytime soon it's not an Norton anthology perhaps it should be but uh, I don't know <laughs> but at the same time I, I think uh, yeah I think I think, I think it gains you know by being viewed in this context other things about it are interesting as well when you're comparing it to to literature of its time I think it makes it a little bit more of its time in a way it makes Tolkien less sort of an island uh, he is of course yeah. extremely idiosyncratic and, and original in yeah. many yeah. respects but he's not 
uh, completely outside of the currents of, of literary history. And even in the strangest ways, I mean, one of, you know, devising languages, right, that that might seem like some, you know, are, you know, think that an Oxford professor of early medieval literature who's also writing this crazy <laughs> fantasy trilogy is uh, might be doing. But at the same time, I mean, contemporary with his very earliest work, which was written, you know, I guess immediately after his experiences in, or, or even earlier, right? So around the first world, so early decades of the 20th century, 1910s, 1920s. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the time when many uh, authors, poets, um, thinkers um, around the world are feeling that, um, you know, are experimenting with language. There's a feeling that an ordinary language um, has sort of served its purpose as far as literature is concerned, that it needs to be pushed further. Um, um, you know, the experiment of the modernist avant-garde, the experiments of the modernist avant-garde are happening at that time. That's exactly, in fact, the time when they sort of reach maybe their most extreme formulations. Like, with, so, so you get something like, um, you know, the trans, the, the idea of the transrational poetic language in the Russian avant-garde, so that you have to... So first you, of course, the first thing you do away with is like, um, you know, even romantics do that already. You know, you do away um, classical, you know, traditional poetic diction. Eventually, sort of free verse comes along. Um, eventually, experiments of a still, you know, you, you get automatic writing with Dadaism and so on. And then it, at the end, like it's it's the idea to break completely free of um, ordinary language, right? That p- poetry to be genuine, right? To be to express. You know this, whatever we call it, that you're trying to express to break into these new domains of experience, it needs to do away with conventional language entirely. So it needs a transrational language. And we think of those. I mean, and that's you know that's very. Uh, I I also look at that. That's another thing that that's, that's a side interest. I don't study that professionally. Uh, but 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 that's all happening. And then on the other hand, you have Tolkien. Um, you know, devising languages. <laughs> At all, I mean, the, the 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 sort of the his intellectual world is very different, and in and you know, it's not maybe very intuitive to be drawing connections between as as seemingly different um, authors as, as and, and literary movements as these are. But I don't think that that's entirely an accident. Um, and there's many other. Um, things you could point to in Tolkien that, that make him more of his time and less of a less of a oddity or a, or a sort of sure. yeah yeah such an anachronism an apparent anachronism certainly the the interest in, um, in languages and sort of metafictional conceits are part of that so another sort of part of or area of this this whole metafictional question pertains to the Silmarillion and some of the other materials mm. of course the, the whole red book idea pertains primarily to the Lord of the Rings and the way that's set up. But um, there's also, of course, uh, his sort of first age works, which began as this sort of book of lost tales. Yeah. And that's the I one guess... thing, by the way, that I regret about the article. Sorry to interrupt your train of thought, no. but I just, so I, as soon as this was published, I remember thinking, damn it. <laughs> I, I, there's there's a there's an obvious and much better title for that article. It should have been called the Tales of Lost the Tales of Lost Books, <laughs> Tales the Tales of Lost Books, Tolkien as Metafictionist. That's that's what I should have titled it. But it was but that I, I I was holding I was holding the printed volume in my hands when when that 
when I realized. <laughs> sorry, sorry, continue. That's okay. That would have been a nice, yeah, but no, that's okay. Um, it still, it still works, works nicely. So just, I suppose, in regards to Silmarillion, I think questions of meaning and authenticity become even more salient because what do we have at the start of the Silmarillion? We have the creation story. Um, and I said to, to Dennis Wise last time, in, in the last interview I did, I said, you know, if, if we're thinking about metafiction seriously, um, then this creation story looks like a myth from it, you know, in, it, in, its, um, in its formal features, right? It looks like a sort of a, a work that is the outcome of a kind of some sort of cultural tradition. It resembles in various ways sort of Mesopotamian uh, myths, mm-hmm. um, including, of course, Genesis in some respects, you know, but also sort of the the Greek um, the Greek cycle as well, um, especially in um, in uh, oh god, having a brain. What's his name? Um, not Homer, the other one. Um, <laughs> he's here. He's here. That's the one. Um, yeah. yeah, especially he's so you know. I asked, um, you know, I was asking Dennis then, uh, you know, if we take it seriously as a myth, in other words, is not literally true in the story world, what do we do with that? And many readers, again, approach this Silmarillion as a kind of, I don't know, as a kind of user's manual. Uh, you know, they'll have a question about the world, Tolkien's world, say, well, what does the Silmarillion tell us? Um, and that oh, yeah. sort of taken kind of canonical fact. So, you know, it is a canonical fact that there are these Valar and, um, and whatever, and they do this and they do that and, and everything else. And Dennis's point was that, well, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the people in the world view this as being true and therefore that that's what's meaningful. Um, so I, I don't know if you have any particular opinion on that, but, but um, you know, again, how does this, if, if, for me at, at any rate, say that the, um, the metaphysical, metaphysical, the metaphysical, but also metafictional mm-hmm. uh, sort of status of the Silmarillion uh, as a kind of compilation of mythical texts and perhaps legendary texts, you know, it, it's fairly clear just from the, um, just from the, the formal features that Tolkien imbues into the text. And, you know, coming from a sort of um, an archaeological background, obviously I have some familiarity with the text, genuine text of that sort. So um, for me, reading the Silmarillion, it's always been the case that I read it as a kind of as a kind of mythical uh, mythical text. But but how do you think, um, well, how do you think about that whole issue, if indeed you do at all? <laughs> but um, Well, I mean, well, yeah, uh, yeah so there's several things to, to say about it. First of all, uh, as you said yourself, and um, I think there was an early article by I, I can't I will never remember now where I read that, but I, I remember reading somewhere um, either in an article or a book where somebody says something uh, to the extent of the compendious manner of the narrative of, of much of the Silmarillion, right? The, the the way it's sort of more constrained in. Uh, in if you compare it to something like Lord of the Rings, is itself is itself a device, itself indicative, yes, of, exactly. or, or, or you know, yeah, exactly. So, but but well, one thing that you said slightly earlier on in in, in uh, just now was uh, you said something like the Red Book is not uh, the Red Book concerns more with the Lord of the Rings. In, in fact, in, in in actual fact, it doesn't. I mean, it, it because it's fairly clear that so the the, the so called Red Book is. Is five volumes. One volume is 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 uh, the one that covers uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but not the, the narratives themselves. It is the original source on which, through various steps of 
uh, you know, intermediary steps, we eventually reach the narrative that is then translated into modern English as the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, right? Yeah. But as the sort of archetype, the ultimate archetype of, of, of that, then then come the three volumes uh, that are called or, or are described in the note uh, on the Shire Records as, as Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, right? Which he which he did while while at Rivendell, and and those are clearly meant to be. And then there's a fifth one, which is is a is a is a more heterogeneous work, which is compiled from all kinds of sources, multiple hands of, you know, had a. Um, and I think it's I, I think it's not me. I, th I think it's fairly well established that Tolkien sort of expected, given how much material he sort of had lying around on the on the quote unquote Silmarillion material lying around, and how long he had been working on it. He thought that would be an enormous work. In fact, it turned out to not be quite you know very long at all. And that and that that probably is why there's three three volumes of of the translations from the Elvish rather than than just the one. <laughs> Yeah. Is that true? Am I making that up? Isn't that uh, somewhere in that's 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 what I s yeah. seem to remember? And uh, I've got my book right right next to me. I should. <laughs> but well, it's, it definitely says that there are three volumes. I'm just wondering about whether it's it's uh, three volumes because he sort of anticipated that once published, um, mm. it will be a work that would be several times the length of the Lord of the Rings. Um, or maybe, or maybe that I've, I've just completely made that up now. In which case, I apologize. Um, um, but in any no, case, right. um, um, yep. In any case, that that was the that was the explanation for the Silmarillion. So um, that's how the Silmarillion was 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 a place was found for it in the framework, just like he he had found the place for the Hobbit, and he used, for example, I think, the Northern Shire records. When the note on the Shire record says, uh, you know, Bilbo's diary was became a favorite with children and was was many times copied. I think that that he uses that to correct what he later regretted. <clears throat> Excuse me, which was re uh, writing the Hobbit as as a you know a children's book essentially with that intrusive narrator. Um, you know all those the, those little mannerisms that uh, that, that <laughs> disappear from the Lord of the Rings. Well, that's why, because in fact it wasn't there in the original. The original just was this diary, uh, an account of these real life events which had taken place in, in ancient history, um, you know, many, many, many centuries yeah. ago. And then along the way, it was sort of. Um, you know, became a, as he says there, I think, favorite with children, and 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 it underwent these, you know, this lowering in tone, and 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 that that you know, children's literature would evolve. So, ultimately, of course, the problem with the Silmarillion, I suppose, is that it's an unfinished work. So it's an unfinished work, which uh, is the product of, or, or rather, um, it's an unfinished work that went through many versions. There are many alternative. <clears throat> Uh, sure. uh, you know, manuscripts for for particular segments of it, and so on. And then the question comes of of editing it. I don't know actually enough of, of that process to comment on it in detail. Sure. Um, but but one thing that I, that struck me sort of uh, uh, when I had this idea about you know I, I want to write something about about the metafictional element in this work, and then I started reading the scholarship a bit more closely. And then I saw that, that this custom, you know, this this uh, habit had formed in, in Tolkien criticism of referring to the, the Silmarillion, you know, in, in italics, like the printed work, the actual published work that Christopher 
talking, edit it, and then the, the, you know that habit of of uh, also talking about the Silmarillion and quote marks, and referring yes. to that whole body of 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 alternative uh, you know versions and separate literary works. In fact, in in many ways. Um, or alternative versions of the same work as the Silmarillion, and then to sort of almost use that as, as uh, you know, to to say things like in the Silmarillion, like quote marks, Tolkien, uh, which which I just, I mean, I don't, I, um, I understand the the sort of impulse, but I just, I, I think it needs to be treated like it would be treated with any other author. There, I don't think there's a a, a statement anywhere by Tolkien saying, you know, I want all of these various versions that I've been you know, writing of, of, of that I've gone through, some of which are clearly in conflict with each other, right? Um, yeah. All of them, I, I want my, you know, my readers and my critics to, to 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 approach it all as if it were a single literary work and to make interpretive claims uh, uh, or critical claims on that basis. I just don't see that. Um, I think that with that massive material, uh, now needs, it needs editing. So clearly, we're dealing with an unfinished work. Therefore, and and on the other hand, not as unfinished as as to make it unpublishable, right? And um, and it's just like with any other instance of that. Somebody, uh, and of course, the specific, the the the, the um, what is specific about Tolkien in this respect is that um, his literary ex- executor was was his son, Christopher Tolkien, who basically did all this um, I don't know if he d- did it all on his own I don't, I don't know how, how that worked but clearly apparently had the sort of a say in you know what will be published and when and so on eventually um, like with any other work Tolkien's works will, will move into the public domain and then you will be able to you know you or anyone else will, will be able to edit the Silmarillion and then you will make your case this is why I'm you know I'm choosing this version of rather than that version and <laughs> yeah. And yeah, no, I mean exactly exactly like with with any other, you know, author. Um and then the the, the real editing of it the real editing of it, right? The, the obviously the, the 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 Christopher Tolkien for various reasons is is an extremely um you know, good choice for for an editor, but he's I don't think he, he he's the only choice and I think as with any other author, eventually this will this will be on the table, re-editing the Silmarillion, and then and there will probably never be a, a, a version that everyone will be. But but you, but you have this all the time, you know. You have it, there's multiple editions of of Hamlet or uh, you know any any other works, right? Sometimes there are of course works which are complete or more or less completely, uh, you know. There, there's more or less clear consensus that this is basically the text and there's maybe one or two sort of but many other works that there isn't right and there exists multiple versions and then that's what literary editing is, is comes in and is supposed to do now one interesting thing for me about that is that there is actually a note as I, I, I mentioned this note that, that Tolkien had made at, at some point when the first edition of the Lord of the Rings was out and he says um, you know confusing real life with the machinery of the tale was a mistake we need, I need to correct that and then he corrects that in the second edition. And then um, I think it's in the article somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. Uh, there's another note that Christopher Tolkien also reproduces, saying, saying of the note on the Shire Records, this this should preface the Silmarillion, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you have there, and then, and then it may well be the case that, you know, Christopher Tolkien has some. Alternative material, which then again 
negates or cancels out that final, it, maybe that's not the final instruction, maybe there's simply material that is unavailable uh, in the public domain for study. Um, it could be any number of things. But in, in it, it, certainly there are leads, right? Certainly there are options. Um, so, um, and I think there's a, a good case to be made that the Silmarillion sh uh, already is, already is in fact, uh, um, written into the metafictional framework through the through the idea yeah. about Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. Um, so they're double. But they're, so another uh, thing there is that then they are doubly translated as well because they were first translated uh, from the Elvish to Westron, right, as it would have been, yeah. and then eventually they somehow have made their way into the hands of this modern editor who's now translating into English. So you have a doubly translated work yeah, on top of yeah. all the other intermediary stages that we have to presume, I think, that have interposed in between. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, you know, you will presumably on this podcast have a ch or have already had a chance to talk to some proper uh, Tolkien scholars, <laughs> and then they will be able to say, uh, you know, what what can be done, what what should be done, what what the options are, and so on. This is just sort of an a, a, an amateur's view from the side. No, but I think I think that's right. I, I mean, as you said, though, I think it's up to the reader as to how seriously they want to take that, and then the the meanings that they derive from from the from the knowledge or from the the sense of that that distance from, as it were, the original uh, history. Again, you know, as I said, I think that especially in the case of the Silmarillion, regardless of you know which versions might be better, I think there is a clear case to be made that that, as you say, belongs to the metafictional kind of um, conceit, if you like, and that uh, uh, you know, as I said, reading it myself, I, I find that that sense is is already there in the, the sort of formal features of the text itself. The sort of, yeah. Another thing, another thing that I've just remembered, sorry, uh, is that um, doesn't actually Christopher Tolkien say something like that also at some point? He says, uh, I missed uh, in the, the bit. He basically says, I missed the part in the note in the Shire Records about the translation. That provides the, uh, yeah. that provides the explanation. Yeah. But then there was never um, um, sort of... I don't know why. I don't know why. At, if you've if you've publicly made this statement that you know, oh right, that's what it was, and I uh, originally missed it. Why this was never yeah. sort of form formally executed in in later editions of the Silmarillion? Yeah. Um, it's just something that future editors of of Tolkien's work will have to you know consider, weigh the options, and 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 go with one or the other. You know, there's never a perfect solution in that in, 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 in mostly there isn't perfect solution in, in so yeah. I agree and I think I think I think another well you know ignoring the metafictional nature mm -hmm. which I think as you said I think does sort of give the give the project a, a sort of a literary uh, flavor um, ignoring it also um, it's sort of shepherds Tolkien it or the, the whole the whole story into into the kind of status as a kind of franchise um, you can approach oh, yeah. you can approach these stories as though they are simply you know um, authentic recordings of events and there's no there's no mediation that's just uh, I mean that as you mentioned in your article as well that's sort of more or less how the movies approach the book um, and and of course you know with this new Amazon show if they if they if they're going to adapt the second age, they have even less to work with. So it'll be interesting to see how literally they take the story. And if they pay any 
attention at all to the status of those stories as kind of legendary documents, or at least you know somewhat. Oh yeah, legendary. Oh no, that's that's. Exactly, <laughs> I think I think that's that's probably the most interesting uh, sort of you know the, the the most interesting implications of what we've been talking about is for for. Um, film and tv adaptations of tolkien and what what um, yep. i, I re- actually know very little about the the amazon series i actually first learned of it in listening to your the, the podcast the first or the second <laughs> podcast that you did where you guys discussed yep. that i've i still yep. actually yep. that's basically all i know uh but <laughs> but yeah. but even be, even when the when the peter jackson films appeared um, mm. uh, I don't know if you remember, but I think that's in the article as well. Probably, when Christopher Tolkien um, issued that statement, um, yeah. where I think I'm sort of this is from memory, but but I think he weighed his words very carefully and said something like, "The Lord of the Rings is uniquely unsuitable to transformation into visual dramatic form." Yes, yeah, I think yeah. that's more or less correct. And um, and I then and and still believe that's absolutely true, with with the one proviso, which is that unsuitable could could have the word unsuitable in that statement could have been uh, something like challenging or difficult. Um, Yeah. But beyond beyond that, I think he's he was absolutely uh, right, and I think um, you know this. And my sense was like maybe looking, uh, remembering some interviews, or or rather how that news, uh, how that statement was then treated in the news was like, oh, you know, it's this guy, he's his, you know, the author's son, uh, he's you know, uh, this old man now, and he doesn't like, you know, and he doesn't want it, you know, the the, the legacy, you know, desecrated, and he's being unduly sort of. You know what? What's what, what? And of course, I mean, in, in a sense, that's true. It's not as if, like, if you if you do if you make these books into films, I mean, nothing's gonna happen. It's not the end of the world. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I, th- I I think he was misunderstood that what he was. I th- and I in fact think that one of the one of the things that is is at the same time the greatest difficulty and also the greatest opportunity in in uh-huh. translating Tolkien's work into those media. Is how you deal with with this, you know, metafictional, let's call it, still uh, dimension of those works. Because what's interesting about um, it, it's interesting the, um, the differences between the media. What you can do in literary text, you can't quite do in the same way. So there's some attempt at that in the Peter Jackson films, right? We we see, I think, in one one in one scene, I think we see is it Frodo. Sort of writing the, the the red book, as it were. Yeah, they they do show the the red book as a, you know, in a couple yeah, so of he, scenes. He's, he's writing as yeah. So there's some, yeah. but that, that's that's but that's just like that's thirty seconds or or less out of out of out of three you know full like films. Um, what would be interesting? Uh, you know, it's an interesting, and I'm not a, a director. <laughs> I don't know how how, it, how this world seems to work. Is is yeah, you, you're lucky that it's even remotely watchable. Let alone if it's <laughs> you know, because all those concessions need to be made. This multi-million dollar business, and yeah, everybody knows how that works. Um, so, it, so in that sense, I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I think you know, it could have been far worse, but. 
but I still think that there there's there will be room at some point that there should be room for for a for for a film or a TV adaptation of of some of Tolkien's work that would try to mimic that experiment in visual form. Yeah, How exactly you would do that, I have no idea. But like one idea might be, for example, uh, to to have multiple um, sort of multiple versions of the same event staged in completely different ways, right? So you could, for mm-hmm. example, um, I don't know, the same motif can appear um, in the sort of let's say classic Tol- Tolkien mode, right? This you know this this visual. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, version that we could become accustomed to first through, uh, you know, the classic illustrators, and then much of that was reproduced. And I think that what is his name that that served as the visual sort of advisor uh, for the Peter Jackson films, the, the one of the big talking Alan, illustrators, right? Alan Lee, or whatever. Yeah, yeah maybe. Well, anyway, but you saw immediately when you saw the films, it sort of this sort of reminded you of some of the covers, and you could see, okay, right, yeah, that's the yeah. sort of that's yeah. the you know the classic. Um, or one of the sort of classic Tolkien visual identities, uh, uh. but then you could mix that with a completely different one, right? Um, um, yeah. Capturing a completely different sort of, say, uh, pseudo historical age, maybe, right? Because, uh, for example, uh. one one thing that Tolkien eventually claimed, of course, the, the eventual idea that he settled on, because with the metafictional framework and its uh, increasing complexity, what also increases is the is the historical distance, right? So if originally yes, the, yeah, the gap yeah. between that world and our world was was lesser, then eventually it's it's enormous. So yeah, Tolkien, sure. I don't know where, where he says it, but I, I remember that he says um, this is a, uh, you know the events took place in a in a in a distant history when the continental masses were different. So right, that's yeah. the, that, that's the period that we're talking about. So yeah. pr- prior to the formation of the modern cut, right? So maybe I don't know. In a film, you 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 do some overlap between scenes um, in the classic mode and something very strikingly different. Then you maybe cut to the philologist trying to you know deal with those texts, like the the pseudo editor. You show a little bit of him, yeah. uh, uh, and you sort of flip back uh, uh, be- between these layers. I mean, that wouldn't be. Um, um, you know, a blockbuster, <laughs> and it, does, I mean, it doesn't need to be. Um, yeah, but that's that's something. Yeah. yeah, that's something Sorry. interesting that 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 uh, or or you know something anyway. That, but I, I, mm. to go back to that comment, it is, in my view, an impoverished version of of what mm. what, what the you know the artistic vision originally is, um, and it doesn't need yeah. to be. Sure. But of course films i always admire people who even you know <laughs> yeah I, yeah, yeah can do even try yeah. <laughs> yeah and we'll certainly see in this upcoming show if they, if, you know, if they so what do we I'd know really, about the show uh well really very little you said in the second age be dealing probably with the forging of the rings so it'll be mm-hmm. in that period um so a lot of dramatic potential but uh, you know my, my hope is that they don't adhere too strictly to the film universe give us a different a different visual interpretation yeah another, another thing that i was thinking that could you know somebody could do is use the original uh, language yeah yeah well that's right well i mean because they yeah. exist i mean or, or you can certainly fill them out for the purposes so that would be that would that would be something you could do in a visual or a dramatic medium that would be a way of distancing. So, I mean, I mean this, this it, convention, that it, in his, yeah. yeah, there's a little bit. Yeah. But imagine if, yeah. but that was interesting because I don't know if you remember, or maybe I'm misremembering it by this point, uh, uh, because again, it was a decade ago, 
yeah, sure. but it was interesting yeah. that it was interesting that those films appeared and and there was that little vogue Oh, I shouldn't be talking about things that I can't. Really, but but I, I seem to remember there was that little vogue of films, in, you know, like either sort of historical films. I think there was one on Hannibal, which used only the original languages. There was, uh, uh, well, yeah. Mel Gibson's The Passion, right, which used the original languages. Yeah. Uh, there was That's another true. film that that used well non English. So well, anyway, just just used so broke away with the, broke broke away from this convention that uh, you know in a historical yeah. film all the characters will be speaking English. Uh, yeah. Of course, that is a transparent convention that we we get used to, just like in in literature you get used to the, the third person narrator, right? You just don't think about that too much until somebody starts messing with that, as as Tolkien does with the metafiction. Yeah. It was really interesting that on the one hand you had these films. I mean, whatever you make of that, each individual film is irrelevant, right? But just as an example of what could be done. Um, and on the other hand, you had this um, fantastic work, the work of fantastic fiction, which was now being adapted and and, and which was among one of the things that it was uh, very, you know, specific for was that it had these elaborate languages, you know, fictional made-up languages behind it and yet this was used very sparingly in fact none of those characters ever spoke of course had ever heard none of the people had ever or characters in, in, in those works had ever heard the word of english english didn't exist english is a modern yeah. language that happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years later on that the events um so if you wanted to to do a distanced film <laughs> or or television yeah. or dramatic adaptations there is there is things you could do the question is who would pay for that um yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose that i don't would know be, that would be fascinating you could build out westron and, and yeah you know the characters speak in, in westron and and presumably also i mean other i can't remember who's made this point but you know other other writers have sort of made the point well, well you know when we read about hobbits and having clocks and umbrellas and things we're not meant to take you know or we shouldn't take that literally it's a sort of a it's a sort of a conventional stand-in for the notion that the hobbits are kind of um, idiosyncratic in this world and you know you could devise a whole sort of um i'm sure there's fan fiction that does this you could devise a whole uh as it were historical reality behind the the text that that is quite um that would look to us to be quite alien. And that's the effect, you know, when you read Appendix F, at least for me, that's the effect that you get. Mm -hmm. It's like all these names that sound sort of cozy in English are actually. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I love about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the things I love about it is that, that is, is that I think it's the very final page of the sort of mm. standard second edition, the very mm -hmm. final page of the final section, right. Of the appendices, the final page mm -hmm. of the, of the book is where you find out that that there was never any Sam. There was no one yeah, called yeah. Sam. <laughs> there was somebody some... called I, I can't I can't remember what it is, but it's something completely different. Um, Bam. <laughs> do you have it? Sam, do you Sam. have it? Well, anyway, yeah, you know, people can look it up, but it's I think I think in most printed editions that's that's the final page. That to me is yeah. almost symbolic of of this yeah. this this thing we're talking about, right? And yeah, also at yeah. the beginning, the final, the final sentences of those to me are, 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 are uh, that's to me a masterpiece is what he does yeah. at the very, the final passage of the note on the Shire records. And I think I say in yeah. the article, something like that, you almost have the sense that the whole, everything else had to be designed in, 
and you know invented and, and written out this vast project only so that that sentences that one sentence um and and with him went the last living memory of the elder days in middle earth something like that so that that would have the emotional and the sort of aesthetic impact that it needs to have that's what the, yeah. that's what that this this whole metafictional thing is about that's the effect that he yeah, wants yeah. it's almost like yeah. you know it's it's almost like like it's just that's the payoff as it were right you have to go through all of that to to elicit this extremely rare extremely intense aesthetic effect that you're you know and then you know readers can be taken with it more to to, to greater or lesser degree some people just you know don't are not particularly moved or, or interested in it that's fine but for for those on whom it does have an effect i, I don't think there's anything quite like it Right. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's that's why I find enduring appeal in it, and that's why I keep sort of going back and reading <laughs> because it's, it, it, there is something you know. As as I think you say, and I know Michael Drought's sort of worked this up into a more of a metaphor. It becomes a kind of ruin, um, yeah. a textual ruin. <laughs> in yeah, sense. yeah. It produces a sense of yeah, as we as we, as I've said, that sense of nostalgic distance that is so. Um, so important to it um and i think that more than well for me at least more than sort of um hope or i don't know good defeating evil that's that's more for me the, the thematic core of the book and if, if not more yeah, so well, the, these, well. these motifs i mean the the appreciation of the ruin the appreciation of uh, you know the the ancient and the antiquarian i mean these are standard sort of romantic and post-romantic um yeah um literary and aesthetic uh, emotions, literary and aesthetic effects. Um, mm. Tolkien is, 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 I suppose, interesting. In, and I, I know that I'm not the only... I mean, I remember reading scholarship to that effect where um, he's both sort of a, a, a late romantic, of course, in many ways, um, yeah. perhaps most most obviously, certainly more obviously than than that he's, he's a late romantic, then he's also a, a kind of a weird... Um, you know, like a modernist on the on the sidelines of you know a marginal <laughs> modernist, and I yeah, think he, yeah. he he's sort of in between those things is where I would locate it, but locate the work in in literary history. But it's you know it's an extraordinary experiment. I mean, you have to. I mean, I I, I feel that um, you know I I do I don't know if I'll ever write anything on it again. I, I haven't read Tolkien in in a long while. I don't sure. like the idea. The idea of having the time <laughs> to to read at some reasonably sort of leisurely pace, <laughs> the work of yeah. the length of the Lord of the Rings seems like a a, a, a complete fantasy at this point. Uh, but we uh, are in the middle of term, so that's why um, yeah, my, sure. things might look better in, in a couple of weeks. But um, but but you have to know. But I, I think you have to sort of familiarize yourself with that work if you're a, if you're a like a literary mm. critic or a literary historian of any description, um, sure. and yeah. then and then part of that is 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 sort of paying attention to these metaphysical. Oh, <laughs> now now I did it. Uh, metafictional uh, um, <laughs> elements of the work, yeah. Sure, and indeed also the metaph metaphysical one. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's true. Yeah, well, well, I guess it's probably getting late for you, so I might. Um, we can yeah, though this is the. I mean, I was pleasure talking to you i'm not uh yeah thank you for getting up early um, yeah no but but i appreciate the the invitation it was it's really interesting actually revisiting something yeah. that, that you wrote all those years ago 
um, yeah, and, and, and no, whether it still whether it still sort of stands up. So yeah, look, it's great that you agreed to come on and talk about a ten year old, eleven year old medical. I realized, yeah, maybe it was <laughs> maybe it was a bit weird to ask someone to do that, but you know, I still think it's relevant. And um, you know, no, no, no. I mean, it's just, if it's if it's of interest to you, it's it's a it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's very interesting to talk to people. Um, you know, I do it's not my sort of what I normally do. And then it's interesting to talk to people with completely different perspectives. Yeah. 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 Sure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And um, 